0: All right, so um, good times. We've been marching through the Gospel of John since close to the first week um, that we met for the first time. Um, we, this morning, you can open your Bibles if you have them to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And for those who are, are here for the first time, for those who are maybe it's been a while, we, uh, we go verse by verse. We've been going verse by verse through the, the Gospel of John. And as I said a few weeks ago, you know the first 11-12 chapters of John cover three years of Jesus' ministry. And then from John 13 to the end of the gospel covers just a matter of a few days. Uh, John chapter 13 starts what we consider the upper room discourse. And so Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And it's just a mere hours before he's arrested. And then this... Discourse it, it's in John chapter thirteen, we see where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and this is this is huge i mean this this idea of washing feet um, it was meant for the lowest slave or servant of the home and so you have these guys that you know they 're all in this on this table and the kind of a table shaped like a u Jesus is at the middle there you got Judas and John on both sides of them, and they all filter around and Jesus, in the course of dinner realizes. And it wasn't that he was caught off guard, but just the feet were all dirty. And so Jesus, um, in, in sovereignty, Jesus in humility, begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And he uses that as a, as a huge lesson to teach these disciples about humility and love. And this goes on, and, and he begins to, this, in this washing of the feet, he identifies Judas as the one who would betray him. And he offers him this one last token, this one last opportunity for him to repent. And, and when Jesus dips the bread and offers it to, to Judas, and Judas takes it, and after Judas takes the bread, Jesus turns to Judas and says, go, get on with what you're about to do. And so he leaves. And, and, and that begins the cycle. That begins. Jesus now takes his disciples and he huddles them up. His 11 faithful. And these are his last final words that he's given his crew before he takes off, before he's arrested, before he's beaten, before he's killed for our sins. Last week, or two weeks ago, I guess it was, we, we in John chapter 14, I think one of the most powerful verses in, in Scripture, Jesus identifies himself. He says that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you've had the opportunity in life to talk with people who maybe are not believers um, of different faiths. And sometimes you'll hear someone say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. If someone ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, you can tell them they're wrong. Uh, eight times in the Gospel of John, he uses these I am statements. I am, if you remember, goes back to the Old Testament, the burning bush, when, when God reveals himself to Moses. Moses confused, burning bush, what's going on? And Jesus, or God says, I am that I am. It's a term of deity. And Jesus, eight times in the Gospel of John, uses this I am statement in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In this chapter, John chapter 15, we see another I am, the final I am statement. So I'm going to read the first um, 11 verses, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to try and tackle this. So John chapter 15, starting in verse 1, and it says, this is Jesus speaking, he it is that, does, that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so you prove to be my disciples as the father has loved me. So I loved you abide in my love. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have the opportunity to come together freely and to open it up, and to read it, and to study it, and to talk about it. This morning, as we dive into these 11 verses, I pray that you allow them to sink into our soul. I pray that you, right now, tender our hearts. I pray that you turn our eyes and our ears on. I pray that we receive your words, not mine, but your words. That these words change our lives. That we understand what the call to be a Christian is all about. And that we find a life of joy by abiding in you. This morning, I pray, Lord, that you allow me to use your words. Help me to be faithful to your text. Help me not add anything to it or take anything away. May my thoughts be your thoughts. May you receive all honor, all glory. It's in your son's beautiful, precious name we pray. Amen. So when we get to John chapter 15, I'm going to dissect the chapter quickly so we know what to look forward in the next three weeks. So John chapter 15, the first 11 verses that we read today. Um, we look at the, the, the key, term, or the, the key um, relationship. It's between the believer and Christ. So a believer in Christ, that's kind of the theme of those 11 verses. Um, the key term is abiding. Okay, abiding is used 10 times in those 11 verses. And then the emphasis is on union. The union between the vine and the branches. Uh, John chapter 15 verses 12 through 17, we see the relationships based on the believer and the other believers. Okay, believer and a believer. Key term is love, and it's used four times in six verses. And the emphasis is on communion. And then the final few verses in John chapter 15, 18 through 27, the emphasis is on the relationship between the believer and the world. And the key term there is hate. And it's used seven times in 10 verses. And the emphasis is on persecution. So as we read this passage that we read this morning, the first 11 verses, there's this... Allegory that, that Jesus is using. And, and if you remember at the very end of John chapter 14, Jesus gets done and um, and he says to the disciples there, he says, rise, let us go up from here. So they're leaving the upper room. Um, and at this point, they're beginning to march towards the Garden of Gethsemane. In Garden of Gethsemane. They're walking. And, and it's nighttime. Time is Passover. So more than likely, there's a full moon. And so as the disciples and, and Jesus are walking, um, Jesus begins to give them a lesson. Now, there's a couple of reasons. I don't know what triggers this idea of the vine and the branches. Um, it could be as they're walking along, they, they come near a vineyard, and they see these this branches, and this is like Jesus' like, PowerPoint presentation. He's going to use this illustration. Boom, it's right here. Um, it also could be that um, in the distance, they can see the temple. And one of the um, symbols for the nation of Israel was a vine. And in the temple doors, a vine would be inscribed and then covered in gold. And so it could have been that as they're marching and they see the, the temple in the distance, the full moon glistening and the reflection and all that glistening off of the gold doorpost of the vine. Whatever it is, but Jesus goes into this lesson about a vine. One of the things I think we have to be careful of when we get into parables and allegories and stories like this, we have to be careful sometimes that we don't um, add too much to it. Jesus is using it as an illustration. And sometimes we can dig, 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 and make principles and ideas that aren't truly there. Uh, As I told you at the beginning, the method um, that, that we use, that I use, is expository teaching. So we go verse by verse through the gospel or through a book of the Bible. The reason I do that is so we stay within the context of what that verse means. If we use some like high church talk, um, there's one term called eisegesis. Eisegesis means you take a verse out of scripture and you isolate that verse. so You can make that verse say what you feel it should say. Exegesis means you take that verse within the context of what's being said. Okay, so that's why, we, that's why we do expository teaching. That's why we, uh, I choose to do expository teaching. So we do exegesis. We look at the verse in the context of what's going on. So when we talk about it, we're hopefully portraying it in a way in which Jesus or whomever was talking about. And so Jesus is using this example of this vine and the branches. At the very beginning, it says that I am the true vine. Um, it's interesting. In the Bible, there are, are three main references to vines. Okay, the first one comes um, is talks about ancient Israel. You don't have to necessarily turn here, but if, if you want to write this in your notes or jot it inside your Bible or whatever, but Psalms 80, uh, verse 8 and 11 says this. Um, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. So the psalmist here is, is writing and describing the nation of Israel. Okay, we go back to the Old Testament. Remember Moses. Moses drags people out. They get put in the promised land, right? The nation of Israel. And so Jesus, all throughout, or all throughout the Old Testament, there's this symbol of Israel being the vine. There becomes a breakdown, though, because the intent was that this vine would flourish, that God put it in this fertile land, it would grow, produce fruit, and it would be amazing, it would be great, it would be this thing that would give honor and glory to God, except that Israel began to fail. It turned away from God. Um, If you you want to um, look up Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verse 1 through 7, read it for you real fast um, you can also jot in your in your notes if you want to ezekiel chapter 15 where there's also reference to the nation of israel but here we go i um isaiah chapter five i'm gonna read the first seven verses and it says let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning this his vineyard okay his vineyard israel my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it yet. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make a waste, make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hewed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I shall, I will also command the clouds and they will rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry! All right, so this—what was meant to be beautiful, what was meant to be honoring to God—ultimately turned away from God, and God decided to, to destroy it. So that's the first um, main vine that we read in Scripture. Later on, at the end of the Bible in Revelation, we um, we learn about this vine of the earth. Okay, this vine of the earth, Revelation fourteen verses fourteen through twenty paints this picture of this angel. This is prophecy. One of those areas that I walk lightly on. Okay? This is prophecy. And John writes the book of Revelation. And he paints this picture of this angel with a sickle that's going to swipe it twice. The first time as he swipes the sickle, it removes all the wheat. And the second time, it removes the grapes. The grapes in this, in Revelation, that's referred to as the, the grapes of wrath. See, these grapes were so full, were so juicy, except the problem was the juice, the fullness of these grapes was wickedness. And so this vine of the earth mentioned in Revelation chapter 14, um, this particular part of Scripture talks about God's final judgment. A separation of, of the wheat and the tares. The good and the bad. Today, um, it's interesting. We live in a day and an age where um, we can talk about pretty much anything. Anything we want until we bring up Jesus. You guys notice that? Like everything, like anything you want to talk about is in bounds. But as soon as you bring up Jesus, what happens? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, separation of church and state. Right? I mean, no, no, this, no, no, we've gone too far. But anything else is okay. But when we bring Jesus up, all of a sudden, people get nervous. They stand back, and then we get to what we read this morning: the true vine. Jesus, when he makes a statement that I am the vine. This was not a politically correct statement in his day. This was outrageous. Remember, the disciples, they're all Jewish. They were all brought up with the idea that the true vine was Israel. Their whole heritage was the vine. It was our national symbol, the vine. We're the vine. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm the true vine. You failed. Israel failed. Think through this with me. The disciples are mere hours away from losing the one that they've followed for three and a half years. The one they trusted. The one they gave up everything for. Like, he is about to be arrested, beaten, and killed. Their world is about to be rocked. Jesus knows that. And in that moment, he's saying, listen, guys, the vine is not a church. A vine is not your heritage, your nationalism. No, it's me. I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. What's interesting, um, there's this parable in Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, that kind of bridges this, um, this vine from the Old Testament, ancient Israel, and it brings it over to Jesus. Let me read this parable for you, to you real quick. So Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33, it says, "Um, Here another parable. This is Jesus again speaking. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent another other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those servants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you read in scriptures? The stone that builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in our eyes. Verse 43. Therefore, I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to the people producing its fruit. And the one who, and the one who falls on his stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls to anyone, it will it will crush him. Listen to verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. See, the, the Pharisees, these chief priests, they knew the Old Testament. They knew their heritage. And Jesus had connected the dots That we read about in John chapter 15. They understood that he was saying that, okay, they failed as the vine. Now I'm the true vine. So what does this mean? Okay, vine, vine and branches. Um, When we get back into John chapter 15, that first verse says, I'm the, the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Your translation may say husbandman or some other term says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And so this vine dresser, God, has two basic duties. Again, I've told you before, I know nothing about agriculture, horticulture. I struggle with just culture, okay? I don't, I mean, I'm from big city. So as I speak, I'm not speaking on great authority other than what I've read. So you have this idea, this picture of a, of a plant, of a, of a vine. And this vine dresser, the one that's in charge, does two basic things. Right? He, he, um, he prunes and he purges. Right? Prune... Um, you begin to see these dead parts of the branches begin to take place, right? And they cut those little branches off. Why? I mean, what's the point of cutting the branches off? Well, it's because those dead branches or those branches that aren't producing fruit begin to draw the nourishment that the other branches need. And then you have this other idea that he begins to clean or take care. Um,. The very end of, or towards the middle of verse 2, it says um, that he does not bear fruit, he takes away. A better translation for that term, takes away, is to lift up. Maybe you've seen um, like trellises where the vines begin to grow and they begin to take those trellises and the vines, they, they, they tie the, the rope around it. So it begins to grow up the trellis. Why do they do that? So it doesn't stay in the dirt, it doesn't get trampled on. When, when the puddles form, it doesn't... Drowned the vine. Same picture that, that they're talking about here, that, that, that this this guy comes through and you see this vine and he's taking care of the vine. He's doing what's best for the vine. To prune though, to cut. We bring this to our own lives today. This picture is for the believer. A few moments later, I'm going to talk about a um, a different vine that's not a believer. But this particular part right here is referring to the believer. We don't like to be pruned, do we? We don't like it when God comes into our life and begins to snip at things because pruning hurts. I think, unfortunately, today, sometimes when we get to this passage, there's this idea that, um, we can, that people can preach where if, if you're going through trials and tribulations, it's because there's sin in your life. Now, that may be the case, but that's not the only reason why God brings trials into your life. In, in your Bible, I would encourage you, next to this idea where it talks about pruning, pruning. I would write in there, um, James chapter 1. The Bible tells us to count all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. Count all joy when we fall into those trials and tribulations. Why? Because God begins to do that. He uses it. He prunes us to make us better. To produce more fruit. Not to hurt us. What's interesting, though, in this, um, we have to be careful because the trials and the tribulations, they don't cure us. The trials and tribulations don't cleanse us. It'd be like us looking at this as uh, a form of surgery. Okay, the trials and the tribulations, they, they open us up. In this passage, we see very clearly it's God's word that cleanses us. Trials and tribulations, they're used to expose maybe some of our weaknesses, some of the areas that we've not fully given to God, some things that we're maybe holding back from God, maybe other opportunities that we need to search and go and do. But it's for us, it's for our benefit, for His glory. But they're hard. They hurt. I don't believe that God is overly concerned with how painful that is. I don't think God is overly concerned and concentrates much on how much those trials and tribulations may hurt us. You say, well, that sounds that doesn't sound like God. If um, you found yourself... To be very sick. And for lack of better illustrations, let's say it's some form of cancer. You go to the doctor. The thing the doctor's going to try and do is to cure you. Now, some of the procedures may be painful, right? I mean, you go through chemotherapy, it's not a day at the spa, right? It's going to hurt. You'll feel it. But does the doctor want to make you just feel good or does he want to cure you? He wants to get to the root of the disease, of the problem, and get rid of it so you can go on, be healthy, be strong, endure, whatever. Yeah, there might be some tough days, but you have to go through that, those tough days, to get on the other side. And that's what God is doing here. What Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine you the branch, the father, the, the vine dresser. He's going to come through. He's going to prune. He's going to pry. He's going to clean this thing up. And this illustration to me is, is amazing because the branch us, we identify as the branch. He's the vine. We only have value. If we're connected to what? To what? It's a question. To the vine, right? Okay. Let's say um, we have an apple tree. Our goal is to grow apples, right? Common sense. If a city boy can follow this one, right? Plant an (laughs) apple tree. We're going to grow apples. That's our goal is to have apples. Okay, so we go through one season. Great season. All these apples come. Okay, next season. What if we just say, hey, let's just cut this branch off. We'll put it over here. And we'll get more apples from this branch. That will work, right? Why not? It's not connected to anything, right? It can't get the nourishment. It can't get the can't get resources that it needs to produce the apples. It's been cut off from the tree. And so Jesus paints this picture to the disciples. Listen, he goes, guys, abide in me. Draw close to me. Stay in me. Get comfortable in me. Settle in me in my Father. And you connect to me, then you'll get the nourishment. You'll grow. But if you don't, there's no value. There's nothing there. What's interesting is, during the Bible times, as I tried to research this some, when it came to these vineyards, the first three years they planted these vines, they wouldn't allow it to produce any fruit at all. They would cut back and cut back and cut back for three years. And then finally that fourth year, It would develop all this fruit. It's an amazing idea. Amazing concept. They didn't cut it back to damage and to hurt the vine, did they? No, it's what the vine needed to grow strong and to produce all the fruit. See, I think in our lives today, in my life, let me just speak on my behalf. When trials and tribulations come, when tough things happen, when God's doing work in my life, I like to sit back and cry about it. Complain about it. Question God about it. And get mad at God about it. And the reality is, he's doing it for my benefit. Now, later on in this passage. Verse four says, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in a vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. See, a a, a Christian, this passage that Jesus is talking about, is letting us know that a Christian, a true Christian, is going to bear fruit. There's going to be some form of fruit. Now, when we first read this, when we first think about this, producing fruit, I don't know about you, but again, I start thinking, man, I've got to start making fruit. Well, I've got to start doing things to make the fruit. I want to have fruit. I want to be the good Christian, right? But when we read this passage, is it anything that we do? do? Do we create the fruit? No. Remember, we're the branch. We just hang. The vine's what gives us the nourishment that creates the fruit. The vine's what drives the fruit. And that's what Jesus tells us. We're the vine. Or He's the vine. We're the branch. Everything, all the fruit comes solely by Him and Him alone. But it gets a little dicey here. As we continue. Verse six says, if anyone does not, is not able. Let me start again here. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Sometimes this um, passage is used to cause people to question their eternal security. Sometimes people use this passage to say that you can lose your salvation. Um, That's not the case. Earlier in the passage, it it talks about um, these branches in me. In me is talking not about a relationship within him, but is referring more to people who are claiming to be with him. So these branches here that we're going to talk about, we're just going to name these branches, the Judas branches. These are the branches that kind of play the part to kind of do just enough to make people think they might be. But they've not fully given their hearts and their lives to Jesus, like Judas. Matthew 7, verse 17 through 20 says, uh, So every tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit or bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. It's a very clear passage. It's not by the clothes we wear on a Sunday morning. It's not by the picture that we paint and how great our life is on Facebook. It's not by the books that we read, the people we hang out with. It's not by the church we attend, the country we live in. It's not by the amount of money we have in the bank or don't have in the bank not by the car we drive. It's not. A tree. What fruit are we producing? We can't hide it. We can for a while. It's like fake fruit. I don't know if you guys have this in your homes. Courtney does a good job of decorating our house. Seasonally. Right? And she has this little vase thing. And as the season changes, the fake fruit changes, right? Springtime, it's like a yellow lemon. And I guess fall, it turns into a gourd. I don't know, something orange, right? And all you ladies that are laughing because you guys do the same thing, right? It's fake fruit, right? You don't use a real, you use fake fruit. Now it looks good, doesn't it? It looks pretty, right? I mean, it looks nice. I mean, some of them may even be scratch and sniff. I don't know, but it looks good right but you can't take that fake lemon pick it up and bite into it and expect to eat a lemon can you you can and it's the same thing here with us in our lives like we can put on the fancy exterior right we can come to church every sunday we can wear like a three piece suit if you want I'm not, but you can. (laughs) Like we can sing the songs. We can do all the things. We can raise our hands at the right time. We can say a right prayer, a good prayer. We can tithe. Please do. But all those things don't make us believers. All those things don't cause us to have gotten to a point where we fully follow our Savior. Unless we're abiding in Him. What does that word abide mean? What do I mean by abide? It's to settle in. To be comfortable with. It's like you know you're comfortable with someone when you go to their house and you take your shoes off when you walk in, right? Because you know that's family. And that's what Jesus is saying. Abide in me. Live in me. Become comfortable with me. Why do we do that? How, How do we abide in him? We talked about this a week or two ago. It comes through obedience. Obedience to what? Matthew chapter 22, we read about the great commandment that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul and love each other. It comes down to love. We can look at a few other fruits. Um, Witnessing, uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 13 says, um, and this is Paul writing, says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have not often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul, witnessing. Holiness, uh, Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification or holiness, and its end, eternal life. Praise Hebrews thirteen and fifteen says, though uh, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Love. Our Galatians five twenty two through twenty six familiar familiar passage. If you grew up in church. And so often we go through this thing we call the fruits of the Spirit, right? But you guys know we, we we mispackage that a little bit because it's not the fruits. It's the fruit. Verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Okay, so the fruit of the Spirit is love. The, the rest of that list is a description of love. Okay, that's a description of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So as we abide in Christ, we begin to see those fruits in our own lives. Why? Because we're connected to the vine, and that's what the vine produces. What's somewhat scary in this passage, though, is we have trees producing fruit, And then trees that are withering away, vine branches that are withering away. They can't sustain because it's not true. It's not genuine. There's no connection to the vine. So it can't get its substance. It's like Judas. He was with the disciples, but he wasn't really with the disciples. This last week, I've shared with you guys um, for the last two or three weeks. Um, for me, it was challenging professionally. Um, we had a, um, a chance, and, and Carly's here. Carly's stepfather passed away, This, or I guess, a little over a week ago. And her, her dad's funeral was Wednesday. Many of you guys brought stuff and she sent me a kind email expressing her gratitude funerals are always difficult Um, that following day Thursday um, I had to officiate a funeral first funeral I've ever had to officiate it was for a 23 year old young man who um had an 18-month-old son and a girlfriend that was about six months pregnant. I mean, tragic. I mean, tragic situation. He was on life support for about two and a half weeks. I had never had the opportunity to meet the young man. So I can't, even if I knew the person, God, only God can judge the heart, but a family member connected to our church came up to me the night before they pulled him off of life support and said to me, "Chad, what what happens to somebody who believes in God but never accepts him?" That's something I couldn't give an answer to. I froze. We know the answer to that. But in that moment, a theological question we read about, we know about, becomes reality. Guys, I'm all for theology. We should read this book and know this book. I believe, unfortunately, today we live in a society that's very ignorant when it comes to the Bible. We need to know this Bible. But if we just learn this Bible for the sake of knowing it, so we have it all up here, and it doesn't come down to here, it means nothing. We're no better than a Pharisee. But if we read this book, and we say we believe this book, and we apply this book to our lives, our lives will be different. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You can't have it both ways. Remember, good tree produces what kind of fruit? Good fruit. So an apple tree is going to produce apples. You're not going to see an apple tree producing watermelons. Watermelons. It doesn't happen. But yet we live our Christian li- I live my Christian life that way. I can say what the book says. I know what it says. But doing what it says is completely different. Abiding in Him. What's so amazing about this, this, this section at the very end of, of verse 11, I guess it is. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You guys know there's a difference between happiness and joy? Happiness is an emotion. Like I would venture to say, all of us in this room... All of us in Tallahassee, Leon County, Florida, United States of America, Earth, are chasing happiness, right? We all want to be happy, right? I mean, that's a legitimate statement. Am I, am I out of bounds there? We all want to be happy, right? Guys, happiness is an emotion. Joy, joy is not an emotion. Joy is an experience of the Holy Spirit. The emotion. I've got four kids. Um, I can watch my kids go from running around, laughing, having a good time, jumping up and down, to crying in like less than half a second. (laughs) Right? I mean, listen, I don't know about you you parents, right? Right? Like, we can see our kids like, ah, everything's great. And boom, like tears down the face. Like, their world's just been rocked. Happiness is an emotion. Right? Like, you could come to me and say, listen, Chad, I'm, like, I'm in a tough bind. I I need money really bad. And, and um, if I don't get this, I mean, they're going to take everything from me. Well, how much do you need? $15,000. All right, here's a check. Go. You would leave, yes, awesome, $15,000. You run to the bank, excited. You go to deposit that check, and all of a sudden they come back and say, listen, uh, there's no funds to... (laughs) Right? That happiness changes really quick, doesn't it? Right? You're no longer happy. This is emotion. But joy, that's an experience of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we get that joy by staying connected to the vine. That's the only way. It's the only way that we can explain when we go through those trials and tribulations. We may not be jumping up and down excited about it. But there's still a peace knowing that I'm connected to God. I may not know what's going on. This may hurt, but I'm connected to Him. I'm going to follow Him. We don't always know the outcome, but we have the peace. I want to encourage everyone this morning here to do a little self evaluation. What are your fruits? Are there fruits? Is your life different? Is my life different? Is there evidence that proves and shows that I'm a Christian? Listen, I can't stand outside and look at a tree, the bark of a tree, and say, wow, that's an apple tree. But the moment it starts growing apples, I can turn and say, wow, well, it is an apple tree. It's a beautiful apple tree. Because of the fruit. What fruit's growing off your tree? Is it the real tree? Is it real fruit? Is it that fake fruit we decorate with? Or is there no fruit? John chapter 14 says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. There is only one way to him, to heaven. And that's through Jesus Christ. That's it. And if we're truly believers, there'll be fruit in our lives that show it. Doesn't mean that we can't get away from God. Doesn't mean that we go through seasons of life that have been dry. But there will be fruit in our life. If there's not fruit, if there's no fruit in your life. If there's nothing you can look back to and say, Yeah. And the reality is, you may be a lot like Judas. We talk the talk, but in our heart of hearts, do we really walk the walk? Let's pray.